Hi-ya-bab. Uh, hello there. Did you like the musical instruction? Uh, what were you supposed to be? I don't know, I just got a little bit of a musical inspiration through you, my body. Were you like the opening of the film, you know, like the lady with the torch? Columbia TriStar. Okay, yeah, so like that one, but singing? But she doesn't sing. Okay, so were you like the MGM lion? I mean, that kind of sounded like the conflict guy mixed with a cat on a fight. Tony the Tiger, they're great! Um, I don't think I've ever done an impression of a lion in my entire life, so that's an exclusive for you and the world. Okay, maybe you should practice it then. All right then. So, how has your week been, darling? My week has been flat. I mean, my bum's flat, not my week. As you know, I've had a, quite a busy few weeks, work-wise. Tiny violins. Well, I have a job. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, well, mine was busy. Okay. But what that means is that I've been just sitting all day long. It's like I've, at like 8pm, I look at my Fitbit and I've done 500 steps. Yeah, but you know that whole 10,000 a day is fake news. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that it's fake. It, um, a guy made it up to sell something. It was Yeah, he was a Japanese guy. And didn't he invent the pedometer just before the Olympics in Japan in the 1960s? And he just plucked a number out of thin air that thought sounded good. Yeah, so people listening research it. Actually, there's no scientific proof that the 10,000 steps means anything. There's no... What do you say? Data? Data? How do you say it in British English? Oh, I think I say... Oh, you're putting me on the spot now, Bab. Well, you are British, aren't you? I think I say data. Okay, yeah. So I would normally say data. You know what the thing is? Sometimes I don't recognise which one is the American version of a word and the British version of a word. And today I'm kind of getting in the mood of listening to those two different types of English. Oh, I see what you're doing, because we have a stateside guest on Bareback today. I know, very, very special guest from the other side of the pond. Yeah, we're going all the way to Oregon, Bab. Yeah. What do you know about Oregon? It's where Portland is. Yeah, well, that's where our guest is from. Yeah, I know. And anything else? Well, the thing is, there was a TV show called Portlandia, which was like a dry comedy uh, show that in Argentina was shown in that, um, you know, you know, cable that has always this channel that show like the weird shows. Babe Station. Uh, no, not Babe, but I don't know, Babe Station, what, that sounds like softcore porn. Not... Basically, yeah. And they film it, you know, just down the road from us. Yeah, no, but I'm not talking about softcore porn. I'm talking about weird TV. So it's, it's, the, it's the channel in Argentina that used to show, like, the IT crowd or, oh. you know, the one with the woman from Doctor Who, the one where she's a call girl. Oh, The Secret Diary of a Call Girl. Yeah, that one. <laughs> So it used to show all of the different shows, and it used to show this um, uh, this show called Portlandia, and it showed, and, and basically what I know from uh, from there and from other things that I've seen about Portland is that it's like very indie, artsy uh, city, which looks like really really cool. 
Right, well, we're not going to be talking about that today. We are going to be talking about sex. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that we see. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. So, shall we start the interview? Let's get going. It's a big one. So, Bab. Hello. Hello. We've been listening to a really cool new podcast called The History of Gay Sex. Riveting, because we are gay, so we do the gay sex. We do, we do. But we've been listening to a podcast about it, which has basically been discussing the culture and history of gay sex. Kind of does what it says on the tin, really. And I am absolutely delighted that today we have the creator and host of The History of Gay Sex, Stuart Blaylock, joining us on Bareback Podcast. Hello, Stuart. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm well. I'm doing well. Just enjoying my morning here in Portland, Oregon. How are y'all doing? We are we are fantastic. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us today. So just to put it into context, it's morning for you, but we've just finished our working day. Yeah, it's almost 1030 in the morning. I mean, that just blows my mind that technology can link us <laughs> up like this. I mean, I feel like you're in the room, although we can't actually see you. We can hear you. Yeah. But you're on the other side of the world. It's just insane. It's the magic of the 21st century, I suppose. Tell us a little bit about you. We, 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 you're living in Portland at the minute. Is that where you're from originally? No. and Well, I moved here last September from, from Chicago. And I lived in Chicago for about six years. And then before that, I was living in Houston, where I met my now husband. And then before that, I have been living in Dallas, Texas, where I'm, where I'm born and raised. Wow, so you've literally gone right around the country. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I've basically been in every single region. My mother's side of the family is from the Northeast, so I'm like now completely connected to the U.S. And tell us a little bit about uh, your name. So is, does that have a European origin? My last name is Blaylock, which is historically Scottish. For some of the research that I've done, Blaylocks were historically on this what is now like the Scottish English border. When I visited Scotland, it was the first time. Like I always have to spell my name, and it was the first time that someone completely understood my name when I was in Scotland, which was the first. And did you feel like you were home? I told myself at least, yeah. <laughs> my genealogy is Scandinavian. I've got fair hair, and um, we think that you know the family history that we've done. We think that my you know, relatives and relatives of relatives of relatives came over um, from Denmark, Sweden. And I remember the first time that I went to Sweden, I was like, yeah, I get it. I get it. And also, I mean, I'm not saying this is about me, but everybody in Sweden is extremely hot. Like, so, you know, I definitely got at home there. <laughs> and, I, and I haven't been to Sweden, but I'm, now we have to go because I need to have a point of comparison. Like literally no one in Sweden is ugly. I mean, you are my partner, so you know I think you're hot. And if you didn't know, I'm telling you now, because again, I care about your feelings (laughs) and all of those things, (laughs) everything nice. Uh, But yeah, but we'll have to go because I need a a comparison point. Yeah, we'll definitely go. Have you been to Scandinavia? I have not, no. But you've been to the UK? I have, twice. Yes. When I was 13, I went on a family trip. We went to London and then we did some day trips to, to Cambridge and to Dover. and then. We went up to 
So we stayed in Edinburgh for several days. And then I went to Stirling one day, then came back. We're in York for two days, then went back to London for a couple of days. And then in 2018, my husband and I went to London for a week. Did not do as many day trips, mostly just hung out in the city. And then one of my friends who is a Texan abroad who lives in Paris, he and one of our mutual friends came up and we drank and partied a lot in London. And it had an incredible amount of fun. And obviously the favorite place that you visited out of all of those places was York, because that's where I'm from. Yes, no, absolutely. Actually, no, I have to say, so I am like a European history nerd at heart. I literally am not as good at my job because I'm reading too much about history. (laughs) And um, I want to go back to York specifically for this, like, it's not kitschy, but this, like, exhibit that's on the Viking settlement there where you go, like, underground and there's, like, this, this, like, chair that's, like, floating. Do you know what I'm talking about? So you're talking about the Jorvik Viking Center. Yes. Yes, I like, I, I might not be as impressed about it as an adult, but when I was 13, the combination of it being like a history theme park is like the best thing ever. Like you say, you sit on a chair and you go round what it would have looked like in York in the Viking yeah. times. Um, when it was called Jorvik. Um, it stinks of piss and shit because obviously that must have been what it smelled like back in the time. At the end of it, you see like a few coins and things like that. But yeah, it's it's amazing. And it's it's really famous. Like we used to go with school, but in the summer when all the tourists came, I mean, people would queue for hours and hours to basically, like you say, sit in a chair and smell piss and shit. Because Ben <laughs> loves history as well. And Ben loves York as well. So anything you need to know about York, Ben's your guy. I will. I'm going to take you up on that. 100%. Next time you come over, we will go to York. Um, I'll sh- I'll show you all the quirky places. Obviously, I will take you to the National Railway Museum because I'm a massive train spotter or, or rail fan, I think is what the uh, the term is used over there. We'll go to the Yorvik Viking Centre. I think the last time I went, I was probably about eight or nine. So I'd be really interested to see how it's changed. <laughs> like I said... I might not be as impressed as an adult now, but I had a, I have really fond memories of it. Well, remember all that partying that you did in London when you came over? Oh, basically, yeah. just do that before we go to the Orbit Viking Centre. <laughs> so regardless of what happens, we'll have a great time. <laughs> there you go. That's perfect. It'll just feel like a dark room, doesn't it? <laughs> that's not where we're going today. That's not where we're going today. I'd love you to tell us a little bit. Um, I mean, we've obviously listened to the podcast, and so we think it's fantastic. But just for people who have not heard the history of gay sex... Tell us a little bit about the podcast. When I was figuring out what I wanted to do, I I first wanted to see what was already being produced and what was out there. And there's a lot of, not a lot, but there's there's a decent amount of gay history podcasts that usually focus around individuals or just kind of like key moments. And I wanted to try something new and different. And I thought about it and I figured, well, you know, there are a lot of gay people in the world who are very different. But kind of the one thing that we have in common is we like having sex with other men. So I was like, okay, that might be a really cool place to start is on the history of gay sex. And as like as I broke it down, you know, being gay or identifying as gay is really just a term or an identity that's originated in the last 100 years. So I said, okay, I'm going to expand it beyond gay identifying people and just focus on like homosexual homosexuality and homosexual expression same sex sex stuff like that and when i did that it really created this really cool intersection of kind of cultural homosexuality 
and sexual expression that literally you can go back to, there's some people that speculate that like with cavemen, that there are examples of homosexuality. But I did my first podcast on ancient Greece because it has a very prolific amount of historical evidence of ritualized homosexuality. So pederasty, as we call it today, involving kind of their military systems with older men and younger men in the military having these sexual relationships. And after doing the research for that, I actually found that they believe society. So that was having fifth century BC um, Athens, that pederastic societies like that were actually way more common than we had ever thought. And then I did some podcast episodes after that about kind of the gay liberation movement, free speech, and gay pornography in the U.S. And then right now I'm reading a book on um, homosexuality in medieval Japan. And I'm hoping to get a podcast episode. I took a little brief hiatus, but I'm hoping to get my next episode about that out in the coming weeks. <laughs> Do you find it difficult to find information about, about same-sex uh, same sex, sex throughout different cultures? Because, of course, as you, as you mentioned, in, in ancient Greece, so there are places where there has been a lot of documentation about it, but presumably there has been other cultures or other places in the world where it has been hidden for longer. So do you find it really hard sometimes to find the sort of accurate information? So yes and no. There's a lot out there. And so in terms of just the availability of people talking about it, there's a lot more out there than I expected. But the 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 real qualitative aspects about it make it hard because you either have you either have examples where you have homophobic historical writings. So you kind of have to glean between what is actually taking place and what is being distorted through whoever wrote the history, you know, putting on their own morality to it. Like in medieval England, saying someone was a sodomite was a way of tainting someone's reputation or maybe, you know, if you had like two, I don't know, well, let's say rival like factions within a medieval, medieval family, you know, to attack someone else and say that they were caught engaging in sodomy when they never were, it was just kind of a political ploy or tactic is super common. On the flip side too, it's just, there aren't a lot of contemporaneous historians talking about gay sex. It makes it a little bit puzzling, but in that way it makes it, it, makes it interesting because it's not as straightforward where, um, you know, it's just all laid out very easily. There's a lot of synthesizing you have to do. Why do you think modern historians are not looking into this because surely this is of great value to you know a large proportion of people around the world and to be honest it sounds like middle ages england was like an episode of gossip girl <laughs> <laughs> so who, who would be interested in that okay just in general medieval history i love medieval history people go well why do you like medieval history so much and i go because it's soap opera history you have like brothers murdering brothers and like it is just like the most dramatic and brutal form of history that A is still like really well documented, but also just like so dramatic. But on that note, it, wait, I'm sorry, what was your original question? <laughs> ben is always taking it down to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. I'm just curious as to why you think that historians around the world today are not are not looking into the history of, of, of gay sex throughout time. Is there a particular reason why this is not happening? Because surely 
for a lot of people, it would bring a lot of value to their understanding as a person and and, and where we're going as a, a community. The actual foundation, like, we'll say like a homosexual history, it was never really documented about because going into, so before World War II, if you were to really talk about it, you were violating decency laws. And there's a lot of, I, I first learned about this because a friend of mine is a classicist so he studies ancient greek and roman poetry and writings at the university of chicago and um i was learning about this uh, i read these poems by marshall who is a, a roman and he is talking about like anal sex just explicitly like the way that they're talking about sex is so explicit i first had looked at a a latin it had been translated from from ancient latin and I go, what am I missing? I go, I'm looking at it passage by passage and it's not showing up. And he goes, oh, well, that edition's from the 1930s. They couldn't actually translate it because it was indecent. You could go to jail. I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, yeah, decency laws before World War II pretty much forbid anyone to talk about it. I go, so it was like an open secret as, as someone who was researching this. He goes, oh yeah, if you, I mean, if you spoke you know, ancient Greek and you're a Latinist, like everyone knew what was going on, but no one really wanted to talk about it and no one could, no one could legally talk about it. Oh, wow. After that, when it started becoming legal to talk about, academics didn't really talk about it that much because they'd be accused of being gay or sexual deviants and it could hurt their career. And actually one of the first really famous academics to talk about it is this last name Talbrin. He's at a university of the UK. When he came out with a book called Greek Homosexuality, I think the first edition was 1979. And he was like the pioneer of just talking about homosexuality in historical context. So this was specifically in, in Greece. And when you read the preface of it, he took a really liberal view of, of sexuality, especially at that time. And after that, it just slowly started to open up. But there's just not that much like... I would say the 90s is when gay history started becoming a bit of a thing, you know? I mean, it's just, it, it really has been slow to take off. And if you look at the way that, you know, academia spends their resources, there's just not as much of a amount of interest in homosexual history. It's coming around. And it also depends on what you look at too, you know? There's a lot of research out there about sexuality and homosexuality in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. You know, if you want to look up homosexuality in medieval Portugal, it's pretty scant. Also, you know, you're going to need to know Portuguese if you want to go through like probably the the older texts. And that's one thing for me is that I think one thing I like about the most about UK history is that I I, I speak the language, <laughs> so all of those texts are so much easier for me to be able to access because or access because there's no language barrier so if we look at the kind of history of of gay sex and i'm, I'm talking about history as a, as a long timeline here you talk about greece and, and, and ancient rome where there was kind of um okay it's not the kind of gay sex that we you know most of us i hope experience today i suppose you kind of say there was kind of a father son kind of sort of like a mentor mentee yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. I was kind of going with like the daddy thing, but you know, it is it is that kind of thing. Yeah. How does how does it go from that to being not accepted at all or not discussed or not not part of society and then to what it is today? What what had to happen? Christianity. That's a big factor. When you look at Greek pederasty, 
the Romans did not take so when you look at when you look at ancient Greece, you had what we'll say are like the elites. They are hanging out in gymnasiums where everyone's naked. The mentor mentee role, which is the Erastes and the Aramenos, is basically higher education at that time. And then also training to be in the military. When Rome con- conquered Greece, Greece still had considered the best schooling of the ancient world. And a lot of Roman elites would send their kids to go be educated in Greek schools. And you had this guy who was the original pedagogy, and the pedagogy was there to make sure that this Roman rich child was not being seduced by a Greek teacher because of the reputation. As a military system, it slowly started to wane out by the end of, you know, kind of going into the next millennium. But really when Christianity took hold of the Roman Empire is when they really started to stamp it out. Christianity and just kind of monotheism in general has probably been one of the largest suppressors of homosexuality, at least being in the open spheres. What's what's that monotheism? Specifically with Islam and Christianity. Judaism just doesn't have as large of a scale of a presence in terms of like societies across the world throughout time. So and this is probably an odd question that just came to mind. And I've been gay for 39 years. Uh-huh. And I've never thought about this before. When you talk about uh, sort of homosexual sex throughout history, is there at some point sort of a change in paradigm where homosexual sex becomes something that is part of sort of these mentor mentee, these military. So it seems to be something that morphs from a different type of relationship that a the equivalent of husband and wife, if you like. So is there a point where it changes and it becomes a, a sex based on sort of status or military or education and becomes what we have now as monogamic? relationships. So I I would say that there's never one or the other. One thing that's interesting, and the reason why I think Greek society and onward is a good example is because there's a lot of historical evidence of this ritualized homosexuality. In terms of non-ritualized homosexuality, you you can say with utter confidence that that has existed forever. The Talking about it in the sphere that this took place in open, it waxes and wanes throughout society. One thing that's interesting, though, is that you have, um, so, you know, we think of like, okay, we're on this like progressive cultural arc. And I don't know how it is in the UK, but like in America, we always, there's always this like kind of saying of like, you know, 1950s of like, women stay at home and the, and everyone has like this yard at the picket fence and everyone's happy nuclear family you know crime wasn't an issue there weren't gay people there's this kind of like weird nostalgia for conservative cultural values and i think a lot of people think like the further you go back in time just like the more repressed and repressed it is but that's not necessarily true there are times that throughout history that open homosexuality is a lot more prevalent than others one example is if you look in the Renaissance in like Florence, there was a lot of like open homosexuality there and the popes at the time were just so upset by it. And I think they would, I want to say it was the Medici who were in control or at least whoever was in control during that time in Florence. I think the popes would write letters being like, what is going on in Florence? You need to stop this debauchery. And by debauchery, you know, we're not talking about any kind of like mentor-mentee relationship or 
institutionalized homosexuality, just people being openly gay and then being known that, you know, gay sex is happening, which maybe answers your question. It's, for the most part, it's not that ritualized or institutionalized homosexuality is what predominantly has taken place. It's just more of what's historically available at certain points through certain periods in history and stuff like that. Historically speaking, you used to have separate jurisdictions where the church, so if you look at medieval England, you had kind of like two court systems. You have the Catholic court and you have like the king's court. And depending on what you do is how, is like what jurisdiction you fall into. And when you look at religion, you know, if they're going to regulate our personal lives, the more power, the better. I mean, that's just kind of how power dynamics work. But, you know, that eventually goes away, especially when the Catholic Church gets kicked out of England with Henry VIII and kind of nationalized. It's interesting you say that, that you were talking about this, though, because when I was doing some research about the history of gay sex in the UK, I actually came across some really good stuff that I'm going to do an episode on. And one of them was these guys were getting caught having sex in the 18th century. And they would go to court and in their trial, they would be like, but this was consensual. And we liked it and we wanted it. And we don't see what the problem is. And that was actually the first time that people started openly debating if same sex sex that was consensual should really be a crime. And it's interesting because thing I was reading about, they were saying how if the guy was 14 or older, then it should be considered consensual because that was considered like adulthood at the time, which is like crazy to think about a 14 year old being responsible for anything they would have been down the mine yeah for all intended purposes they were adults at that time weren't they yeah people were starting families then 14 what was i doing when i was 14 listening to spice girls (laughs) deciding what sweets i was going to buy from the corner shop on the way home from school you know let alone the thought of working and starting a family i mean it's insane isn't it yeah i know for a moment i thought you were going to basically be deciding whether you would be cherry or beaky Always Jerry. Always Jerry. You're a Jerry. (laughs) The Spice Girls was my very first concert I ever went to, which was when I was 10. And I will have Spice Girls dance parties to this day. I always have a special place in my heart for the Spice Girls. And it was probably the first time my parents were like, he might be gay. (laughs) (laughs) I still know the dance moves to spice up your life (laughs) and that's quite a frantic song isn't it you've got that you know the calypso bit in the middle that's really hard i like know all the words still (laughs) we all know all the words they did a tour was it last year or the year before? i can't remember no last year that was yeah the year before we forget about 2020 it was just amazing i mean there was no vicky b obviously she was too busy designing wedding dresses or whatever she does now but it was so much fun wasn't it it was I went to their reunion tour in 2007. I went out to Las Vegas. There's like three acts. And the first act was they all sang together. They're like five most popular songs, whatever. And then the second act was they all sang a song of their own. <laughs> Victoria B, or, you know, Victoria Beckham, she did not sing anything. All she did was she walked down the stage that was kind of like a runway with this big like dress blowing through some fan or something. And the reaction that she got, as opposed to all the other very talented singers, was not, like, like people were screaming and she did absolutely nothing. She just walked down the stupid stage. I mean, don't get me wrong, I was screaming too, but like, 
I still <laughs> <didn't> like. <laughs> I remember being like, they're all so talented. I don't think she really sings that much as like part of this troupe, and like people were losing their shit, and. I just remember being like, okay, this is kind of messed up, but also, like, I love her. <laughs> I, I think that she knows what her brand is, and she just goes for it. She knows she doesn't sing, does she? She has, like, one solo line every third song in all of their music. I remember when they first started, and I think her first solo line, and you you probably know better than me, Stuart, was in To Become One, which was um, it was a big Christmas song here. And I remember watching an interview with them and Victoria started speaking. She was like, well, this is the one where I'm going to have my first solo line as a single. And everyone was like, you know, because let's be remember, when the Spice Girls first came out, literally every time they breathed or blinked, the world was watching. So when Victoria Beckham comes on the television, she's like, yeah, I've got my own solo line. And everyone was like, what's it going to be? You know, and it's, what is it? I can't even remember the line, but she, you know, she says it and then it's gone to the next one. But it, it was such a big thing. <laughs> I don't know if, it, if she made it over to the US but she did try to have a solo career here. She had this awful garage song that she did with this guy called Dane Bowers. <laughs> and then she had a couple of other songs. And then a few years ago, it came out that she did this whole album that was never released. And there's this amazing song on it called My Sweater. And it's all about her putting on her favourite sweater. And I can't remember it, but it's <laughs> terrible. It must be in the depths of YouTube or on the dark web somewhere. But please do seek it out. Because there's this song where Victoria Beckham's like, I'm hearing my sweater and I'm wrapping it around me. And, all. and then some rapper comes in and it's just, it's very, very bizarre. Was any Biggie um, sort of solo stuff popular in the US? Because I definitely know that it wasn't in Argentina. No, it was not in the U.S. I, so when I saw them, they there were only the four of them. They had already kind of begun to break up. And then I think that they finished their tour. And I want to say that they all tried to do some kind of like solo work. And it never took off. Not in the U.S. I want to say that Jerry almost did. Like, 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 maybe got some more attention, but no. Well, she did. She tried to because her her first single was "Look at Me," wasn't it? And then she did the Brit Awards where she came out of a woman's a giant vagina, which I remember. Oh, I never saw that. And sang a song called "Bag It Up." Um, it's quite a good song, actually. Yeah, but how do we digress to the Spice Girls? Well, the question that I was thinking while we were talking about the Spice Girls, as amazing it is to any time of the day, talk about the Spice Girls, but how does somebody who knows all the moves to the dance routine for Spice Up Your Life become such an expert in the history of gay sex? I I don't know. (laughs) I've always considered myself this little weird gay, I guess, who is like a bookworm with medieval European history and now the history of gay sex and I will Lady Gaga and Spice Girl dance parties when I drink with friends. I don't know. It's just me. <laughs> really, we're all weird gays, aren't we, at the end of the day? I mean, I'm a train spotter. You know, I'm a rail fan. I like steam engines and I like <laughs> diesels and I like electric trains. I like reading about trains. I like looking at trains. I like riding on trains. There is something, I think, innate within particularly gay men where we we have that little thing that's kind of, it's not really cool, but we kind of make it cool. I wouldn't go as far as saying that you make trains cool, Bab. I do make trains cool. (laughs) When you're a gay man and, you know, people expect you to behave in a certain way, like they expect you to like Spice Girls and Lady Gaga, which we do, and that's absolutely fine. 
And, you know, we like Chardonnay. I don't like Chardonnay. I drink beer. And there's these kind of things. And then when people realise that you're a gay man who likes trains or likes history or likes architecture or likes rock music, people are like, whoa, that does not compute. Yeah. Historically, I suppose that there is a view of a place where homosexuals should be, which is completely swayed by morality of the time and so on. But there is an image that a lot of people have of homosexuals and uh, and homosexual uh, relations and homosexual sex, that it, it is very sort of not real to some extent, isn't it? Yeah. So is that is that part of the morality thing as well? They like diminishing homosexuals. Well, I think it kind of gets back to why I did want to focus on gay sex because I, I mentioned that there are stereotypes and then there are the ways that people act who are maybe self-identifying gay or closeted or bi. And, you know, gay sex might be the one thing we have in common. Stereotypes are both, they both exist for a reason and they're both inaccurate for other reasons. If there's one thing about humanity, I feel like we feel very comfortable defining people that we don't know for whatever reason. But on the flip side, there is this, you know, in the US from the 90s, there was this notion that gay men were all white young professionals who had no kids and disposable income and they would work a lot and make all this money. Companies wanted them because they were good consumers and they traveled a lot and companies wanted to hire them because they would work more because they didn't have kids, which are all stereotypes and they were, they were done by very flawed studies. But it kind of goes both ways in terms of the characterizations of gay people. But I, I, I mean, I think that for the most part, a lot of stereotypes is just an easy way for humans to feel more comfortable about a situation because they feel like they know it. It's interesting because when I was doing research on, on homosexuality in Argentina and looking at tribal examples of homosexuality, you know, that the, some of the tribes there have very nuanced and complex understandings of gender and gender roles. And it's interesting when you first come in, there are people who are I get what we would consider like trans mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, they're just gay. It's like, well, no, they're not gay, but they might be having same sex sex or they might be homosexuals. There are some examples of people I read who were homosexual. They were just like, they weren't genderqueer or anything like that. They were just homosexual. But then they took on like a different kind of uh, way that they exhibited themselves. So like, oh, they have longer hair which used to be a stereotype for gay people in a lot of different ways or in a lot of different areas throughout time. But, um, you know, they take on longer hair or maybe become like an artisan craft maker and not a hunter. And then you had other examples of people being trans or at least like gender non-conforming, I guess would be the, one of the best examples of it. They might be someone who's born with a penis who doesn't necessarily identify as a male or they identify as a male at certain times, but may only be having sex with men it, it, it makes it kind of hard because it's like you know you come in you're like oh well they're gay and it's like well maybe no they're not gay it's really complicated but it's just a way that i feel like humans they, they want to break it down and in these ways that just make it easier for them to understand even if that makes them not truly understand i mean you know you could you maybe don't personally experience this but you know it's like with gay men it's like oh well who's the guy in the relationship oh my god well there are two of us <laughs> you know Oh, 
Well, no, no, but like, who's the one who wears the pants? It's like, I don't even know what that means. I guess it's almost like trying to make something, not to get too academic, but they're trying to make something heteronormative out of a homonormative situation. And I, I don't think it's always, like, yeah, it can be disrespectful, but I don't think it's always because they're being homophobic in the sense of like, oh, I'm going to be like discriminatory about the way I talk about you. More it's that like, I don't understand nuance and I'm not coming about it from an open mind and like thinking about the impact of my words. It's just really trying to like break it down into a way that that some people kind of very ignorantly understand things. And, and to be fair, I very much relate to that. So I think that so I studied engineering, I worked in manufacturing environments, I, I worked in steel mills, I worked in oil rigs. And I've, I've always felt, is that like in The Simpsons? You know, when everybody dance, no, jump, 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 jump. No, it's not like We that. work hard yeah. and we play hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not like that. Wait, so you, you, you said you worked on an oil rig? Yeah. So it, what is it, isn't the person who prepares food on the oil rig called like the coxswain? Yeah. I just like, I, I, I almost feel like, you should have to be gay if you're the coxswain. Like you should. Like I don't know. I have this whole fantasy in my head of like these like butch mask. Like it's probably horrible in real life. But <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. That you should come with the job. <laughs> but you always say how nice the food is on oil rigs. Oh yeah, the food in oil rigs is amazing. If you can imagine, people spend their two three weeks without going back home. If, yeah. if you don't keep them happy they will just quit because there's so much money as well and all of the, there's so much competition that they will go work on the other rig. Well, we know what's keeping them happy. The coxswain. The coxswain. <laughs> so now, I think we need to do a thing now when whoever's cooking tea, we don't we say, are you going to do tea tonight? I think we say, I'm sorry, tea, Stuart. Well, you're probably okay because you've been to UK a few times, but when I say tea, I mean dinner. It's very confusing. We, we talked about this the other week. I listened. I, I listened to the podcast yesterday on that. Oh, thank you. Was that your five-star review that I saw come through? That's very cool. <laughs> the part that I found funny about the oil rig is that you're all there. And nowadays, there are women as well uh, in oil rigs, of course, not as many and so on. But uh, it's still very much a closeted thing to the point that, for example, you, ha- you have a shop in the oil rig, you cannot get condoms. So, Well, you- I think the coxswain will probably have some. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. You're- after, I- after I brought up the coxswain, I was like, God, how old am I? Am I like five that I just like can't? Get over that the person's name is the Coxway. I'm obsessed. I'm gonna as soon as we finish this interview, I'm gonna like go and legit <laughs> research the history of the Coxway. I used to live in Houston, which is like one of the oil capitals of the world, and I would go to the gay bars and I meet these gay guys. I'm like, what do you do? And they're like, Oh, I'm out in the rigs. I was like, Really? And I'm just like, that is like the butchest job I've ever met a gay guy to have. I don't know, I guess you were out there, Ben Hutt. So props to you. I just like, I guess one of the things that surprises me the most is when I learn how much they're out there. And that like, like, you know, you're out there for two to three weeks at a time. And it's like, it's like hard enough to be like a rural gay, let alone, like, it's like, you know, gay is just like, I don't know, in the US, like, I feel like, you know, there's like a huge gay drain in rural America. Like they, gays just have to be in the cities. They have to be with each other and like connected and all this stuff. And it just like blew my mind that there were these gay guys who would, A, I would imagine be in homophobic environments, but that's just what my guess. But B, be out on these rigs for like three weeks. Yeah. And no Wi-Fi. And no, I'm too extroverted for that. I would like, or unless there's like this like kind of like sexual fantasy playing out, which I don't think there is, although I somehow, I, I don't know, I somehow stumbled across this Scottish 
oil rig worker who is in very good shape and very hung. <laughs> and he has an OnlyFans and he is just doing a lot of stuff on these rigs. So I don't know. Things are going on out there than, than you would expect. I wonder if his boss knows what he's doing. Probably not. <laughs> is he not playing anything? No, he's just a, a cock. He's just a cock. <laughs> he's just a cock. Only fans. Yeah. But that being said, when I worked in industry, I, I remember at the beginning, I wasn't openly, I wasn't necessarily openly gay, but I wasn't closeted either. So basically, I, I didn't particularly gendered my partner, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't hide the fact that, that my partner uh, at that time was a man. And to be honest, I, in that industry, in those industries that I worked for so many years, I've never had a bad experience. Mm-hmm. As much as I know it happens, I have been very fortunate myself. Bless you, before you came on the podcast there, I know you looked into the sort of history of gay sex in the UK and Argentina. Does that correlate with kind of what you've looked at about the sort of history of gay sex in Argentina? It's just really scant the amount of stuff that's out there. One of the problems is that you have pre-colonial societies and indigenous native, like you have native Argentinians. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what you would call it there, but like in the US, we'd say like native Hawaiians or native Alaskans, native Americans. You have the native people. But then even once colonialism starts, it starts to really distort their own civilizations. So you could have a group that was maybe like pre you know colonial era a lot more gay friendly or at least like kind of like queer friendly would be the word that we think of it but then when you have like you even now have this issue where you think of sexuality and like gayness that's a very western way of looking at something and south america is very like western with an asterisk where it's like kind of western kind of not Argentina is like a really weird example. I say that because you're like almost all European descendants. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like Argentina is like European civilization abroad in a way. And if I'm totally like not accurate in that, call me out. Back to, you know, talking about how it's hard to get non-homophobic history records. You have that too. One thing that's interesting though, is that Argentina has had a lot of historical attempts at gay liberation. Several were, were quashed, but they at least were very active, starting in, I think, the 1930s was when you had one of the first gay liberation groups. And that, I want to say, I want to say Argentina was, and this isn't really gay sex, just gay liberation in general. Argentina, to my understanding, was at the forefront of all of Latin America. Wow. Yes. So that that is really... Impressive. I don't mean to. I don't mean to take away any Argentinian identity with my, my Europeans abroad comments. Just, uh, but I think that you are completely correct. So uh, first of all, we are. I'm a Spanish and Italian descendant. We are mostly Spanish and Italian descendants. I think that historically, what happened is that depending on the parts of the country, there were there was a, a lot still of nomad tribes, and the tribes that were settled, they basically were wiped out. Mm-hmm more than colonized it is really difficult to find any information because it was yeah. it was colonized by a very very christian culture the only thing that i remember being able to find was that some tribes and particularly some uh, in some parts of the inca empire 
as well. There was, as you mentioned earlier, these sort of gender fluid, if you like, concepts where people could have more than one gender. And I think that there's, even in Latin America, and I think I can't remember whether it was the Aztec or the Mayans or one of them, that they actually had a third gender as well. Yeah. Like a recognized third gender but other than that information yeah i can imagine <laughs> to be fair i've tried to research it and and didn't find anything i can just imagine how hard it must have been for you to research it the walls that are the hardest for me to hit is when i find an academic journal or an article i say so they're always in like pdf format and you can't you know how like you can't always just like copy and paste a pdf depending on like the how old the file is and this or that mm-hmm. And I hit it and I'm like, oh shit, it's in Spanish. And I'm like looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, it's like 40 pages long too. Like, you know, this is really good and in depth. Or at least I tell myself it's like the best article ever now that I can't read it. And it's just like that, that is one thing that is just such a hard roadblock to hit. My husband who who speaks Spanish would never have the patience for me to be like, oh, you sit down and translate this for me. <laughs> That's like the hardest thing. And then the UK has such a long history of academia and prolific writing, just like as a culture, that it's like almost like when you look, when you compare the two, it's just almost like incomparable because you have one side that is like, we have literally been writing for like almost thousands of years at this point. In Argentina, you have like, when Spain comes in is when you actually still have like written documentation, but that's mostly like 16th century. And you don't have like real anthropologists coming in doing research. And, and so you have to look at it a lot more like modern history. And even then, if you don't speak Spanish as I don't, it just makes it so much more hard to really grasp or to get everything. So what what about the UK? What did you find out about the UK? Oh, there's a lot in the UK. <laughs> I didn't want to be too UK heavy. Well, I told you, I'm like... Come on, spill the tea. <laughs> how, how are we doing it? Where are we doing it? No. Who are we doing it with? Come on. I mean, we can go back to the Romans for like history, history. And the Romans had a more similar to the Greek kind of, so they had a very similar view of sexuality as the Greeks, which is you could do certain things depending on who you were and what positions you were doing. So if you are a Roman citizen, it is totally okay if you are the top to anyone. You can, as long as you're the penetrative partner, you can have sex with, you know, you shouldn't, another citizen, but it's really his fault for, for being the receptive partner at the bottom. Wow. If they're a non-citizen or they're a slave, you can do whatever you want. Same with Greece. They're the ultimate bottom shamers, but that's just how it was back then. There were no power bottoms in the, uh, in the ancient world. <laughs> I mean, I think there were. We just don't talk about it. Because <laughs> they say, like in ancient Greece, they're, you know, they're talking about this relationship with this boy and the... And you know, he's not really a boy. He's like a teenager and an older guy. And they're like, well, you know, sometimes you get tempted. And, and they're, they're talking about the relationship being really important and really special and beautiful. And they go, sometimes you get tempted, you know, and sometimes you have anal sex. And if you have anal sex, it doesn't ruin everything. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, we're obviously making a concession that it's happening. You're also not supposed to be the recipient partner in oral sex. So if you're receiving oral sex, totally okay. If you're the one giving it, not as okay, also goes into your status as a, where you are in the Roman Empire. The thing too that's really interesting is that, you know, we think when you go into Christianity, it's like, okay, well, the Bible says like two people of the same sex shouldn't lay down with each other. When you go back before that, 
if you are the receptive person, then you're acting as a woman. And if you're a man acting as a woman, that is totally shameful, which is why it's okay if you are the penetrative sexual partner because you're just acting as a man. That is really common actually throughout a lot of cultures going up to today, especially if you look at like sexual practices in prisons. You know, they'll interview these guys and be like, well, don't you think it's, you know, kind of interesting that you're engaging in homosexuality? They're like, no, no, I'm the man. He's being a woman. I'm being a man. So there's like this really like reduced kind of ignorant view of the gender role, but it's something that's persistent to this day. But to get back to your original question, so, you know, the Romans leave and uh, when you have the Anglo-Saxon invasion, there's no real documentation about what they were like before Christianity came in, which I want to say was in like the 800s, but they're very pagan. I know that when the church missionaries showed up and they saw the way that things were organized socially, they were like appalled. I want to say I read somewhere once that like women, the amount of rights that women had was like appalling to these Catholic missionaries. I don't know. The, the things that we associate with paganisms would make me assume that sex was you know, less inhibited as it was under Catholicism, but there's no real documentation of it. Then, you know, you've got, like, William II was supposed to be gay. Really? No fake. Yeah, he never had kids. I mean, that, that's all historical speculation. We don't know. I mean, the most interesting one is with uh, Edward II and Pierce Gaveston. Mm. Allegedly, at one point, they were just, like, openly gay in court together, like, literally acting with each other as, like, a king and a queen would. They say that Edward II was killed for being gay. Some people think that he was just deposed and like kind of like sent off and like hidden. Basically, like we're not going to kill you, but you can't be king anymore. Mm-hmm. And to my understanding, it's not necessarily true that just him being gay is what was the problem. I think that they didn't like the politics around his relationship with Pierce Gaveston and some of the stuff he was doing politically as king, which goes back to my point of you have examples where you're in a very conservative time and it's pretty much known that someone is gay or at least homosexual but it really comes down to the way that impacts society and the decisions that they make as king because people are really forgiving you know if things are going well you know the uk has a very unique kind of circumstance with their own politics given with the magna carta and the way that the nobility is kind of a first proto-democratic relationship with the monarch that you have a lot more of emboldened people than you might find in other parts of medieval Europe. So we were basically cocky. (laughs) A bit, yeah. But there's, you know, maybe historical anecdotes of some homosexual figures, you know, not consequential to the LGBT rights movement. The first sodomy law is during Henry VIII in the early 1500s. But really when you start, the, the 18th century is when you start really seeing a lot of stuff written about gay men and homosexual men and then onward you know it continues the the 18th century evidence is really interesting because you have something so cruising was called and i might totally butcher this but it's called caterwauling um that was going around like a cat in heat uh when a man picked up another man for sex this was called picking up trade well, we still say <laughs> <that now>. <laughs> <laughs> to agree to have sex was to make a bargain to score a trick was called to bite a blow. 
to have sex was called to endorse, but that was I-N-D-O-R-S-E. I don't know, like in, in American English, like if you endorse a check, it's E-N-D-O-R-S-E. So I don't know if that's just like a cognate. That comes from boxing slang. Gay cruising areas were called molly markets and they're either in public toilets, which I know cottaging is the contemporary term, major public thoroughfares and open fields or parks. And it was interesting because I was reading about how they said that the streets of London swarmed with errand boys and porters offering to carry goods and packages and delivering messages for small change. These young men were happy to accept a drink and a pub lunch for the expense of a friendly stranger. There are many documented instances of gay men picking up delivering boys, taking them to a pub, giving them a pint of beer and a meal, and then fondling them, and in many cases persuading them to have sex. Kind of sounds like a date, doesn't it? Mm, a little bit. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> for the men. <laughs> Who was the errand boy? As long as gay sex has been taking place, gay for pay has been taking place, which is another really interesting thing that some people are so repulsed by homosexuality and some people are so down with it as long as they just make some money. <laughs> So you're basically saying OnlyFans has been around forever? Yeah, so there were parks that there was a lot of cruising in. There were these policemen that would go try to catch people. And one of them would be like the the guy that would engage in it. And then they'd have this other detective be the, the witness and arrest them. And then you had gay bars, which were called like Molly houses. So they could either be where it was a pub that was private that gay men would go to. Mm-hmm. Or you had it where there were exclusive rooms in the back, but they weren't necessarily brothels or people having open sex like a sauna. Um, a lot of times it was just a place where people were meeting. Oh, just for a chat. Yeah. And that was something that came over to the US, especially in the 19th century, because we didn't really have the amount of city life that was seen in London in the 18th century. One of the first known glory holes was in 1707. <laughs> <laughs> We learn something new every day. Just can't believe that that's documented. I mean, these are the kind of things that should be in a museum. What, a glory hole? Yeah. The original glory hole. I mean, I <laughs> I completely agree with you. I want to say that if there's not, there should be a, a museum to gay sex in like Berlin somewhere. Maybe they're like creating the um, the whole collection, but... Did you go to Holland when you came over to Europe? Um, I've been, I've only been to Amsterdam. Because they have the sex museum in Amsterdam and there's that bit when you're just coming out before the gift shop and, well, let's just say it's not a super soaker that wets you. <laughs> I mean, thankfully it's just water that comes out, but yeah, it really shocks me. I was like, oh, really? Is that what they look like? I would go back to Amsterdam in a second. I love Amsterdam. I had an amazing experience there. I love the Dutch. That city is so beautiful. And I would go back in a second. But I can't get too excited about anything because I try to go to Europe every summer. And I was like, when you be back there this summer? And COVID is still persistent. Well, listen, we're keeping our fingers crossed. We've both had the Pfizer. Same. Me too. Which apparently is the gold class of the yeah. of the vaccines but do you know what just get it done jam mm. and go that's what i say i'll take we i'll take what i would have taken the sputnik if i'd have been offered it so keep our fingers crossed um and hopefully 2022 you come over to the uk i'll take you up to york we'll get off our faces on booze and then we'll go and uh, smell <laughs> some shit and some piss in the Jorvik viking center in the little, um, electronic <laughs> cast i feel that next year is going to be our year let's keep our fingers crossed I think so. I think so. Stuart, I, I could talk to you for hours, but um, I know that you, uh, you've you got errands to run today. You're moving house. 
you got paint. Is that what we're going to do today? Yeah. Congratulations, you're moving house. Thank you. You're just ha- sat hanging around chatting to some gay guys in the UK. So we really do appreciate <laughs> we do. spending we your do. time today. And it was absolutely illuminating. So um, when you've read that book on Japan and when you've read that book on London, you must come back and tell us more because some of those anecdotes in there, I mean, the glory hole thing, I'm going to be dining out on that <laughs> six months. You know, we'll be cock-swaining away shortly. And and you can see that yeah. he's a little bit lazy because he's asking you to read the book and then come and talk about it. He's not reading it. In, in, <laughs> that's a little bit like your homework. TLDR, TLDR. <laughs> but in the meantime, be, before this being the homework, tell us a little bit about uh, your podcast, uh, your social media. So how people who listen to Bareback can or listen to you, where can they find you? Yeah, I mean, we didn't even have to talk about your instagram it's amazing i mean some of those images that you find they're just fantastic i know i i need to i got really caught up with work in the last like month or two and so i need to get back to it because that actually is a lot of fun doing instagram but my instagram is just gay sex history you can email me at gay sex history at gmail.com my podcast you can listen to anywhere you find podcasts so apple Podcasts, spotify amazon google Podcasts, literally everywhere except pandora who's pandora Oh, Pandora is like a digital radio station in the US and they are, you have to go through all of this stuff because they don't want about not using copywritten material with your podcast. And it's like my podcast platform just syndicates to everything, but Pandora wants me to like fill out all this paperwork and I'm like, I'm not like, I'm not that big. <laughs> I'm not even kidding, but I misunderstood. I blame the language barrier there. I thought you said Andorra, not Pandora. I thought, why is a oh. tiny country between Spain and France discriminating? Against? Oh, no, no, no. Pandora, Pandora. And I, excuse me, I said gay sex history for my, my Instagram. It is really history of gay sex for my Instagram. Gaysexhistory at gmail.com is the email to get in touch with me. And yeah, I love hearing from people. I love hearing feedback. Anything that anyone wants to say, good or bad, I love hearing. We've dived in and we've loved it. I mean, you you are just, your mind is like a computer. Um, you soak it all up and you present it to us beautifully. So you're not like a computer at all. You're like a computer and a renaissance man together. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and you know all the dance routines with well, Ice so. Girls and Lady Gaga as well. So that's another thing that we'll be doing when you come over to the UK. You will be personally teaching yeah. me and Beha the... Um, Spice Girls and Lady Gaga routines. I also have to say, I have been dying to go to Argentina. So we let's not leave out the beauty that Argentina has. And I've always wanted to go to Buenos Aires. And now my, my newfound desire is to go skiing in Argentina. Amazing ski resort. There you go. That's what I wanted to hear. Amazing ski resort in the wine country. So you can, uh, so you can go I in the wine. morning and then That's get bis- visiting wineries. So here you go. I'm a, a gay medieval history buff who loves dancing to Lady Gaga, and I want to go skiing in Argentina. I don't think the UK has good skiing, according to my understanding, but that's okay. We can't be. No, <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. <laughs> For the- We've got ice ski slopes. If you like a bit of dry skiing, Runcorn is where it's at. But if you want real snow, yeah, stick to uh- that road trip. We'll go to Argentina, and I'll show you to the wineries. <laughs> I would go to Mendoza in a second. Argentinian, is it Argentinian or Argentine? I have friends who are Argentines who are like, we're- It comes to you So for the demonym, I have friends who are like, I'm an Argentine, I'm not an Argentinian. And I'm like, all right. I call myself Argentinian, so 
I think it might be both. To be fair, English is not my first language, so maybe I got it wrong. Maybe your friend got it wrong, but in my book, it's okay with both. Okay. Well, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's been absolutely our pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Bareback. Please best of luck with the move. Best of luck with the move. Please keep in touch and come back and speak to us real soon. And we'll see you, fingers crossed, next year in the flesh. Perfect. Yes. And then you can see I'm going to put up pictures of my painting on Instagram. So you can, you can see the work I'm about to do in like an hour or so. <laughs> Brilliant. Look forward to it. All right. Take care. <laughs> Lots of love to you. Take care. Take care, Stuart. Take care. Bye. 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 When I knew we were going to be talking about the history of gay sex, I never thought we would be talking about how Victoria Beckham poses on a runway. Or the coxswain. Oh, I'm obsessed with the coxswain. I need to, literally, I wasn't even joking, I am going to be doing some hardcore coxswain research tonight. Yeah, but coxswain uh, aside, it was so interesting to find out about the history of homosexual sex. And to be fair, and Stuart did a great job, and I kind of feel for him in terms that I knew beforehand that finding out about the history of homosexual sex in Argentina was going to be a very uh, difficult uh, task. And given he has far better resources than what I do, but um, I mean, I, I knew it was going to be difficult. I mean, when you talk about a history buff, he is like genius like the stuff that he knows i know and we didn't give him that long to prepare for this interview and the things that he found out about i had no idea about i mean the glory hole i know 1707 and for whatever reason see that question should have been in the life in the uk test well it wasn't it wasn't it should have you know what we forgot to ask Stuart though what who's the sexiest uk or argentina well, the thing is, when it comes to the history of homosexual sex, I think that we have the mystery, if you like. Well, I mean, he did say that you were at the forefront of the liberation movement in Latin America. Indeed, indeed. In terms of recent history, we were trailblazers to some extent. So I'm quite happy if we just say it's a draw. Yeah. Let's put sexual liberation in the 1930s. Glory Hole in 1707. <laughs> and hopefully you guys enjoyed that wherever in the world you were listening from. US, Argentina, UK, Europe, Africa, wherever. We've got listeners all over the world. And we are so grateful for you to tune in every week and listen to us. Have a bit of a chat and a bit of a giggle. Um, if you do want to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter at BarebackPod. You can find us on Instagram at BarebackPodcast. Facebook, you just search Bareback. And you can send us an email, barebackpodcast at gmail.com. So please do get in touch. For now, we have got to go because I am starvation central and I want some dinner. I need dinner. Who's the coxswain tonight? Mm, you're the coxswain tonight. Okay. So, uh, cheese on toast then? Oh. Yeah, you could be a better coxswain than that. I know you're better than that. But anyway, we'll sort it in a bit. In, in, a bit. in the meantime... From here, XOXO, Gossip Banker. Bye. Bye.